Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, uh, we, I came in from Arizona, but I feel like I should uh, get to claim some citizenship in Texas. I, I, I lived here for several years. I, in fact, my wife, I, I met her back in high school. I was so smitten by this girl. She was so pretty and tall and statuesque and smart. And it took me five years to convince her of all the untapped potential that was embedded within me. I said, girl, I'm telling you, I'm a party waiting to take place. Just marry me, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Anyway, it, we finally got married. And we went on our, we got married in Annapolis, Maryland, but we, 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 we spent our honeymoon at Dallas Theological Seminary because <laughs> we basically spent one week just riding across the country, getting in position, and starting grad school. And we lived here for four years. And then, uh, and then, and then uh, we, we have some children. We had four children, and one of them... Graduated from Texas A&M University. There you go. And he lived here in Austin, fell in love with a longhorn named Lauren, and uh, they actually attended church here. Uh, and, and while they were all sparking, trying to figure out what the future was about for them, so they kind of fell in love. Their romance was right here under, under the arm of this church, and they, and they now live out there. And, and, and now we've, we've entered the holy of holies of parenting, grandparenting. We have five grandkids. Uh, my wife says, grandchildren are God's reward for not selling the kids on Craigslist. You know, it, it is. And trust me, it crossed our mind several times. The uh, 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 raising a family is, is, is a challenge, but, but it's a challenge that we need to rise to because uh, family was God's big idea. It was his ultimate plan for how he was going to transfer his heart down through the ages. When he completed the, the, the creation of the universe and he wanted to put his crowning glory there. He wanted to put that last piece in place that we're going to be the image bearers of who he was and make the human race. He didn't form us into committees or countries or country clubs. He formed us into families. He put a, 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 a marriage at the pinnacle of that. And, 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 and he says, this is how I want to transfer my heart down through the ages, through family. And his plan hasn't changed, even though... A snake slipped into the whole scene and had a cigarette with Eve and uh, some half-truths with her, and Adam stood idly by, not doing what a man should do when there's a snake in his wife's garden. That is, get a shovel and kill the snake. That's what you're supposed to do, man. And he didn't do that, and so everything went down from there, but God's plan is still the same. And he, he, he has a plan. He wants to use the, the family strategically. And and and. And so you say, well, where does the church fit into that? Well, it, it, it fits right where it's supposed to be. The, the church is a collection of families. Now, you might have come in here solo because that's where you are right now in your life, but all of us represent. We came from a family, and then ultimately we, we, we come together. Ultimately, we, we slip in here as families. And so this church is only as healthy as the health of its individual families. And the leadership knows that. And, and, and that's why they put such a priority on family here and, and, and on marriage and trying to help equip. So regardless of where you are in your journey, and you might be single right now or you might have, uh, uh, your, your marriage didn't, didn't work, regardless, it's, we want to come alongside you and help you. Um, because trying to be family today is, is tough. Uh, the, the, in, fact, in fact, if it reminds me of anything, I've seen this at like at a, a circus a couple times and, and, and like variety shows on TV. You ever seen a guy that 
spins plates on a stick. Have you ever seen a guy do that? Uh, I've always wanted to do that with someone else's dishes. Um, I think trying to, be, uh, trying to live today is like, li like the guy spinning plates on a stick. You're a man or woman, I don't know uh, what, what you're up to, but you, you, remember he would put a plate on a stick and he'd spin it, and he keeps adding plates, adding plates. And the more you add, the first one or the third one, and he's just running around like a crazy person trying to keep these things going, spinning smoothly. And, and, and I, I've only got four plates up here. I guarantee you're spinning a whole lot more than that. But, you know, on the front side of your journey, uh, you, you, maybe you're finishing up your education, you got friendship, you got church, you got work. But the cool thing is there's an app for this, see? There, we, we, there, there's a way to kind of organize your life. And so we, we, we kind of get some rhythm down there, but we fall in love, we get married, we add all that stuff into there, and then some of these come along. <laughs> children. Now, we had four children, and these require a lot more velocity to keep them going smoothly. If, you know, I mean, you, and you mix them in with all your plates, and now you're going crazy. But once again, we're pretty clever people. We think, okay, I've got this down. I got a rhythm here, and then one of these comes along. This is a teenager. <laughs> it's not a saucer anymore, and it's not a plate yet either. It just thinks it is. <laughs> it wants all the privileges of a plate, but doesn't have any money. <laughs> and sure has a mind of its own when you try and put some spin on it, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it amazing when kids, uh, they, they become teenagers, and, and I don't know about you, but there's just some kids, they, they figure out how to push every button on you by about 8 o'clock in the morning. And they just kind of keep pushing them all day long. And you're just beside yourself. And, or they're little kids. They're, they're little two-year-olds. And you wish, you wish, how do they do this to me? And you wish, like, uh, Fisher-Price came up with a two-year-old taser or something. You know, not, not a big one like the cops use. But, but you know, not that would injure them or something, but just something to lock them up really good. And... and uh, and then finally they go to sleep. You've been in this one, you, you folks, your grandfolks, and you, you, parents, they finally go to sleep. And your heart gets back to, you know, a normal beat, and you stop by their room to see them before they, you go to bed, just to check on them. I mean, you, you've been there. You've, and, have you ever been, you just go over and you see that, that little one or that teenager, and you just want to go over and put your hand on their little head and say, Demon, come out! What is wrong with you, kid? You're driving me nuts. It's called parenting. It's a sacred trust. It's an honor. You get to touch eternity. I like the way Neil Postman put it in his book. He said, children are a gift we send to a time we will not see. You get to write history by how you treat these kids and how you raise these kids, how you impact them. Well, then Darcy and I started having, you know, when we found out we were going to have children, we're like a lot of parents out there, the Christian parents, said, well, let, boy, you know, we've never done this before. Let's, let's read the books out there and, uh, and, and, and get, kind of come up to speed on this. Now, there weren't nearly as many books on parenting back then as there are now, uh, but we read them. But when we read them, we started to get concerned about what we were seeing because we saw that they fell into a couple of categories. Now, there, there was a couple of helpful things, a couple of helpful books, but for the most part, we saw them. They fell into the, the biggest category we saw. It's, it was what we it was the, it, it's books accommodating fear-based parenting. And I just see a lot of fear-based parenting going on, especially in the Christian movement, which just always amazes me. 
But I see, I see Christian parents, and they're quite intimidated by what this job they're doing. They see, and and, and they, they roll out the usual suspects of who, what they're afraid of. Afraid of Hollywood and, and contemporary music and cohabitating neighbors. And, and they may sometimes they throw in the public schools or, 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 or whatever. And they want to isolate and hunker down and all that stuff. Now, here's the problem with that. And I would read these books and say, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be the last person afraid of just about anything. I mean, we're the last people that should be afraid. When you take all the pieces of advice that God gave in the Bible and you categorize them, you can do that now. It's pretty easy on, on, on a computer. Do you know that what he said more than anything else in the Bible? Don't be afraid. Fear not. So we should be the last one. So if fear is the thing that's driving us, and that's where we're starting from, then all of our strategies are going to be based on accommodating fear. We said, well, that's a, that's a dead-on-arrival plan. We're not going there. And then the other ones, and these are sometimes an extension of these, were, were what we call um, uh, spiritual image control. It, it was behavioral, uh, uh, evangelical behavioral modification, sin management. We got to make sure that we get our kids to, to do the right things and look the right way and say the right things. And, and you know where I think this comes from? I think this comes from an incomplete view of the gospel that we embrace as Christians. It has a lot to do with this very thing of grace that I'm talking about and, and, and where we stop it. Because, you know, when it comes to grace, and I, I'm, I'm going to be unpacking what grace looks like for you. Um, you know, I think that the, the biggest flaw we have in a Christian movement is that when I talk with Christians about grace, they smile and they nod their head and we love to sing songs about it. But we don't realize that for the most, the average Christian out there, when they're talking about grace, they're thinking about saving grace. And that's where they limit it. They, they, it, it. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. They realize that they, they came to that point in their life where they realized there is nothing they can do to satisfy the righteousness of a holy God, no matter how good they live their life, that they fall short of the standards of holiness that God had. And, and that because of that, they, they were doomed in their sin and they, had, they, they, they were doomed to eternal uh, separation from God. God intervened and he sent his son Jesus to take on our sin and our shame to pay that price so that we could have a new heart. And, and, and he became our sin so that we could ultimately gain his righteousness. And it's all an act of grace. We see it right out of the block. We, oh, we had nothing to do with this. This is all a work of God. Isn't it great? And then we, so we get saved and then right away we think, oh man, I owe him now. Boy, with all he's done for me, I need to be paying him back. Uh, there's, some, there's some evangelical hoops out there. I better start jumping through them. And, I better, and, and, and we start basing what our, our righteousness on how much we know about God. And so we become, you know, just Bible encyclopedias. And we just, we want to know the Bible as much as, and I want to know the Bible. The Bible's a great thing. But, but the Bible doesn't say thy word have I hidden my head that I might not sin. It's in our hearts. And so we get into that. And next thing you know, it's all performance basis. And, and, and so, and so, and we have to feel like we have to pay him back. Pay him back. What part of gift don't we get here? And, and then, and we, and, and we base it on how much of the truth we know and how much of the truth we live. Well, I'm, I think that's a great idea. Except John 1.14 says he was filled with grace and truth, not just truth. 
And he wanted grace to be the defining feature of how we live our lives. He never meant the grace that he showed on the cross just to save us. He said, no, I want this to completely transform you, and I want it to temper all relationships from here on out. I want it to be the, 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 the thing that exudes from you. And I thought it's, uh, Sarah nailed it when she was setting up that last song, that, 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 that we, we need to represent the heart of Jesus, the character of Jesus, in how we live our life. That's his grace lived out. That's his grace with sweat all over it. That's what grace looks like when God, life holds a gun to your head. That's what it's supposed to be, and it's supposed to be most in the home. And yet, many times, grace is the last place things showing up in our home. Let me give you an example of what grace is or isn't in, in, in a situation. Let's say, let's use right here, our situation right here. Would you say, since you arrived here at this church this morning, that this church has uh, gone overboard to present itself well as a, as a facility? Uh, it's not nice and clean, and it's beautiful, and the color palette's just right, and, 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 and everything's just right. And, 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 and then the people, they, 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 showed, they welcomed you, and, and the ushers have been nice to you. And, and, and would you say so far that everything's been done, at least from the worship point, they've done it so respectfully and honorably and humbly for you? And, and, and would you say the theology that you, you, you sang about, was that right on the money? Was that biblically accurate? Good stuff, wasn't it? Now, you can't judge me yet because I just got started here, but so far, I've not talked down to anybody. I'm not, I hope I've not been disrespectful or anything. Would you say so far, we've done everything biblically right so far? Okay. But what if it was 25 degrees in this room the whole time? And you're dressed just like you are right now. See, it wouldn't matter how right we're getting it. It wouldn't matter. You wouldn't be able to respond to it because you're so cold. And in the same way, if we're holding for the truth of God and the word of God and the, and the right biblical stuff and all this stuff in our homes, and yet when the kids are around us, they feel rancor and suspicion and guilt and shame and comparison and territorialism and meism and, and all that stuff, it, it's a contradiction of the gospel. That stuff was supposed to be builded uh, out of us by the power and presence of Jesus in our hearts living out. That's what grace looks like. And we need to make that the driving feature of our home. So Darcy and I, we, we just, well, what do we, you know, uh, nice, some of this stuff is good advice, but we've got to do better than that. We need to find out God's plan. Did God leave a plan behind for parenting? Now, here's what's interesting. I went to Dallas Seminary, studied a lot of theologies. Never once was, did anybody unpack a theology of family for me. Not once. Now, I got a lot of good teaching on family, but never once was I, did they unpack, a the, they, they unpack theologies of just about anything else out there, but never on family. And I thought, how ironic. And, you know, and Darcy and I were talking with it. It just doesn't seem like God to go and put this much uh, responsibility on us because nobody plays a role in how somebody turns out more than the parent does. I mean, it's a huge critical role. It just doesn't seem like God to give us this kind of responsibility and not give us a clear plan to follow. Just not like him. Darcy's the brain's the operation, but she made, an, she made an observation and asked the right question, and once we, that happened, everything opened for us. She said, wait a minute, Tim, think about it. God's a parent. He's parenting us. In fact, that's the number one metaphor of God in the Bible. Our, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray, our Father who art in heaven. He's a parent. He's parenting us. I wonder, here's the question, I wonder if we could study him as a parent in the Bible and look what he's doing in parenting and see if we could maybe somehow quantify that. Put some handles on it and figure out they can use, use it for our 
role with our kids, and that's where grace-based parenting came from. What we're going to unpack for you this afternoon, a little bit this morning, that's where it came from. And I can summarize grace-based parenting in one sentence. Grace-based parenting is simply treating your kids the way God treats you. That's all it is, the way he treats his kids. And we started looking, how does he treat us? And we, and we got it to where we started getting this big overarching picture of what God's grace looks like played out in real life. In fact, God so much so that we, you know, uh, people would ask me, uh, you know, now explain grace-based parenting, and I would just take out a napkin and a pen, and I'd just draw it out. And I think when you can actually distill it down to a paper napkin, then you've got your head around it, your heart around it. And we're going to unpack the rest of that today. And you see God's grace, see up to the top, I want to treat my kids the same way God treats his. And then there's four wonderful ways God's grace comes at us. It builds our, he always is meeting these three driving inner needs of our heart. He sets our hearts free. We're going to talk about that more. And, and he builds the character muscles of our soul, and then he aims us at something bigger than here and now and in and, 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 and ourselves. It, we, he, it, true greatness and eternity. Our world is telling us to raise successful kids, and, and it's such a small, limited, uh, myopic goal for parenting. And, and, and so we're going to unpack more of that this afternoon. Uh, in fact, th this, uh, I think when you get it, go out, they're going to have a, one of these if you want to take one of these with you. And on the, on the second side, it breaks down all those things in the very specific ways that they play out. But here's what I want to do. I want to spend uh, time taking that second level on setting your kids' hearts free. I want to I talk about what free, uh, how grace sets our, our families free. Because, you see, if, we, if we're into that spiritual performance type of parenting or, or, or that uh, evangelical behavioral modification or that sin management, that spiritual image control stuff. Really, all those, although I just said four things, all that is is legalism. That's all it is. That's all it is. And, and, and legalism is repugnant to the heart of God. Legalism is an insult to the work of the cross. And yet we can all default to it. It's so easy to fall into it. And, and he says, no, there's something better. And then along the way, not only will uh, this, this really impact your kids, it can help you too. Let's, let's, look, at, let's look at that second level. I wanna, if you have your bulletin, you can follow along with me in an outline there. There's four wonderful freedoms that God's grace extends to us. God extends these four wonderful freedoms to you and me. And, and, and we're going to walk through them real fast here and just wonder, what would it be like if we made these the same four wonderful freedoms we offer our kids? And in the book Grace-Filled Marriage, we show you what would it be like if you offered these same freedoms to your spouse. Let's learn together. <clears throat> Grace-based Grace families give the people they love, first of all, the freedom to be different. To be different. Say, okay, well, that sounds pretty safe. Let me give you some synonyms for different so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Weird. Bizarre. Strange. Goofy. Quirky. Grace-based homes not only have room for those kind of kids, they celebrate them. But fear-based families have no room for weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky kids. Uh, Performance-based uh, sin management, no way is there room for a weird, bizarre, strange, goofy, quirky kid. Because those kind of kids annoy us. And they embarrass us. And you said, so you don't want that. You better stop that. Why? Well, you're, you're annoying me. And then we turn around and we moralize it and make it a moral issue when it's not a moral issue at all. They're just weird. 
Or we turn around and make it a biblical issue when the Bible is not a biblical issue at all. They're just bizarre. So, you, for instance, you have little boys. Send them out in the backyard to play. What's a little boy do? He'll go over and he'll do a headbutt right into a tree. Go, boom, right into the tree. They go, what is wrong with you? You just hit the tree with your, and then it'll hit the wall. They're weird. They're little kids. They're little boys. They do that kind of stuff. Have little girls? They're never alone, even if they're an only child. They have friends they're always talking with. <laughs> and there are no inanimate, everybody has a name. They always are playing with their friends. And, and you, give a, you give a girl five little rocks to play with, she'll make a family. This big one here, this is a daddy, his name's Earl, and then this is a mommy, and her name is Bess. And here's a chill, and you know, uh, you give her little, uh, you give her Barbie dolls, what she do? She'll, you give her four or five, she'll play the view. She'll just set them out there, and they'll have, they'll bait something, and, and they'll have Whoopi over here, and somebody, and then somebody in the middle ticking everybody off, and, and all. That's what they do. The little brother comes in, sees a Barbie doll, what's he do? He picks up, bites the head off, throws it like a grenade, makes explosive sounds. <laughs> They're kids, that's what they do. You can have a PhD beyond belief and be sophisticated as ever. Just have parents. And I'm sorry, this is how they are. Then they become teenagers. Your son goes over to a friend's house. Says, you know, I've been thinking about maybe coming up with a new hairstyle. Friend says, I'll help. <laughs> Look, lay down in the grass, cover your eyes. And he gets out the, the, the weed eater. You know, and then they go into his mother's uh, uh, medicine cabinet, take out the L'Oreal and start squeezing it into the sink and mix it all up and put it in his hair. And it comes out a little bit of blue, a little green, a little pink, a little gold. They spike it out. He says, oh, that's great. And he goes home, walks into this house and he, and he, to show his mother his new hairdo. And she looks at it and says, you know, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. Isn't it interesting when we're desperate, we pull out the heavy artillery? <laughs> Talking about some serious name dropping, I don't think Jesus would be very pleased with your hair. <laughs> you know, right now, kids' hair is pretty conservative. It's, it's, but they go through cycles. I've lived through several of those cycles. And the, and the weird stuff's coming back. It, it'll, it just cycles through. But I remember there was a time when the kids were having so much conflict with parents and kids about kids' hairstyles. And, and so, and, and I was having to referee these things. And I, I thought, well, I wonder what the Bible actually has to say about hair. Now, what I do for my Bible reading every year is I read through the Bible every year. And well, the cool thing about this is I can put a bookmark in the front of my Bible in January 1st say, hey, keep your eye out for something. And I put, keep your eye out for what God has to say about hair. I've read the entire Bible. And I know what God has to say about hair. He says, I don't care. <laughs> it's your hair. <laughs> Express yourself. You can use it as a lab experiment for all I care. It's your hair. And some of you might want to grab the chance while you can. Because <laughs> it's going to bail on you before, before you were planning. You know, he doesn't care. Now, you say, wait a minute, 2 Corinthians, isn't it? it's a shame for men to have long hair. You always must study the Bible in its context and do not push your, what you hope it is. That is not talking about so much the length of hair, it's talking about covering of hair and worship. It had to do with Jewish uh, expectations or Jewish worship styles. And, and if you looked at the men back then and the length of their hair, it was longer than most of you women. So it doesn't build that argument. 
He doesn't care. Now, can you have arbitrary rules in your home about your kid's hair? The answer is sure you can. You're the parent. You can have arbitrary rules. You can decide how they're, you can do that. Just don't make it a moral issue or a biblical issue because it's not. When we make it a, when we make it a, a biblical issue, we shove a wedge between their heart and God and their heart and us. It's legalism. It's toxic. We had four kids, girl, boy, girl, boy. The youngest boy is named Colt. And Colt uh, was in the eighth grade, and he was tall. uh, He was over almost 6'4", going into junior high. And uh, that's where he topped out at. But he said to me, Dad, uh, can I, this year, can I I grow my hair really long? I said, well, give it your best shot. You're going to have to grow it a long time for as long as mine was when I was in junior high. Sure, go for it. He grew his hair real long. It looked great. I was speaking at a church in Miami, Florida. Uh, in fact, I was done. I was in the ca- uh, taxi going to the airport to fly back to Arizona that Sunday uh, right after church when my phone went off and it was Colt. And he said, Dad, it was springtime. And he said, Dad, it's spring break. I know, Colt. We're going to have a good time. Dad, I was wondering, can I have a mohawk? And I thought about that. Uh, yeah, that'd be fun. I think it'd be fun. Tell you what, I'll be home tonight around 7 o'clock. I'll cut you a great mohawk. But, and you can have it all week long, but we're going to have to buzz it off on Saturday because your school doesn't allow mohawks. So I hung up great. Now, you need to know something. I was calculating in, I was calculating in church because it was Sunday afternoon when he called. I'm going to be home 7 o'clock. We, go, we, we attend a large metropolitan church in Scottsdale, thousands of people on campus. And at that time, we had evening services that matched the morning services. So a couple thousand people came in the evening, and that's where all the youth meetings were. And he'd be home from that, church is over, cut off next Saturday. He hung up the phone. Shiloh, his sister, was listening. What did Dad say? He said, I can have it. He's going to cut it off tonight when he gets home. I know how to do one of those. <laughs> she got out the stuff, the scissors and all. She cut him a mohawk. They took Elmer's glue and glued that sucker up. <laughs> and he went to church. And he, I'm sure he sucked the oxygen out of some people's lungs, and some of the older folks were stepping up their meds and wondering what happened to security around this place. And I'm sure some people probably recognize, isn't that the son of the guy that writes the books about parenting? But, but what, was the, what was the great thing about this evening is, is uh, in between the two services, our senior pastor, Daryl, he was a senior pastor at the time, he was out there talking to some people, and he looked over and he saw, he said, Colt, Colt Kimmel, is that you? Get, get over here, get over here. He went, that's the greatest mohawk I've ever seen. How do you get it to stay up like that? Glue. And he went on. And he said, this is a great. I wish I had a camera get a picture. Me and Colt Kim, I put it in my study with the greatest mohawk I've ever seen. Because you see, you need to know something. And this is very important. We took our kids to a grace-based church on Sunday. It was very important to us that we went to a grace-based church. We wanted to go to a church where the people running it know what matters and what doesn't matter. Man looks on the outside, and legalistic Christians look on the outside. God looks on the heart, the Bible says. This is a good kid. He loved his his folks, and he was a good sibling. He worked hard in school. He loved Jesus, served others. He had a great heart. He just wanted to have a mohawk. You say, well, wait a minute, Tim. Wait a minute, Tim. Don't you think sometimes the way kids look on the outside is reflecting a real free fall, a real problem in their heart? Sure it does sometimes. My question is, does it make any sense to attack the outside? The outside is a symptom of a problem on the inside. Fix the heart. The outside will take care of itself. If there's nothing wrong with the heart, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. 
That's what grace looks like. That's how God treats you and me. In, in, in Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. I love the way Chuck Swindoll broke that down in the Hebrew. It says, it says, literally, train up a child according to his unique inner bent. Some of the weird, bizarre, strange, goofy stuff your kids are simply showing the way God hardwired them. That's their uniqueness to them. And when we're attacking it and marginalizing, we're actually working against the grain that God put in them. There's a wonderful tool out there that I worked with Mark Gunger on uh, for several years to create. It's called the Kids Flag Page. and helps you ID the unique uh, personality type of your kid. And, 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 and so that when they, so you can raise them according to that inner bent. Well, grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be different. Let's look at the second one here. And that's grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. Where the, 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 the kids don't have to wear masks around the adults in their life, the, the, the parents and the grandparents. They can verbalize their doubts and their fears. Their vulnerabilities can come to the surface without fear of them being attacked. I was going into the ninth grade. Annapolis High School is a big 5A school, and I was very excited because the rock and roll was louder, the girls were prettier, there was more of both, and I was going to play football for their famous coach. I was excited going into high school. But in that summer between my eighth and ninth year, several hundred of us incoming freshmen got letters in the mail from the Board of Education saying that because of overcrowded conditions, we were being annexed to an elementary school in downtown Annapolis. So instead of going to the big high school, we're back in elementary school with many trade-offs. Probably the biggest one was in the area of phys ed. Because normally for phys ed, you would put on a phys ed outfit and go out and do whatever the, the activity was. And it's a humid area, so you sweat a lot, no problem. Take a shower, put your school clothes back up. We didn't have that option. We had to do everything in our school clothes. There was a gymnasium on the second floor of a large county building, a block or so from the school. And I went over there one winter morning for phys ed. And when I came into the gym, I got excited right away because there was a trampoline open in the middle of the gym. And I got excited because I'd never jumped on one before. They, 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 they weren't uh, pieces of equipment in backyards back then. I got excited. I'm jump on a trampoline. The, the PE coach came out. We all gathered around. He looked around at all of us. He came back to me. Kimmel, take off your shoes. Leave on your socks. Climb up here and follow my instructions. So I pulled my shoes off and started to climb up. But as I did, I realized I had holes in both of my socks. Not one, both. And one of my friends, oh, he needed, he, he went in, he, oh, we need to take up a collection, buy Tim some real socks. Isn't this sad? Look at his toes sticking out. And it, it became a very embarrassing moment for me. It was like he was putting down our family's economics, which, by the way, we were lower middle income, meaning we were just, we didn't miss meals, we paid our bills on time, but we went on the thing, the mantra, get as much mileage out of your clothing as you can. And up to that point, I thought it was a good idea until I was up there, and I was doing exactly what that coach was telling me to do, but all I was thinking about was my toes sticking out. And when I stood down, the other guys were jumping, I was thinking, I'm going to go home, I'm going to get out my soccer, I'm going to darn every pair of socks. I will never let this happen to me in public again. Now, were that to happen to me now, at my age, I could care less what people think about that kind of, I, have, I don't care. But when you're in that quarter of time, that 14, 15, 16, 17, that's the time when kids are unusually self-conscious. And I was really embarrassed by this. Well, the other guys jumped, the bell rang, the coach dismisses, he took off. I went and got on my shoes, I went over to this stage at the end, I got on my coat and my books, and I went out this side door, and I, went, and I got down the bottom of the stairs, I hear my name, Kimmel, wait up. It was the coach. 
And he came down. He pulled me over the side. He said, hey, Tim, I want to tell you why I called on you to do the demonstration. Tim, you're the most agile student in my class. And then he reached down, and he pulled off his tennis shoe. He had a big old hole in his sock, and he was standing there wiggling himself. He said, you know, Tim, us agile guys are very, uh, we're, we're tough on socks. <laughs> we are. Now go to class. So I'm heading over to class, and the whole way I'm thinking, what's agile? Because I had never heard the word before. I had no idea what he just said to me. But I was going to English class, and they had these big dictionaries. They actually love it when you look up a word without a gun held to your head. So I went over, and I'm looking up agile. Now I'm glad I didn't find argyle. I'd have been confused. But I found agile. <laughs> and I read for the first time in my life that I can move with speed, ease, elegance, and liveliness. And I read for the first time in my life that I was mentally alert and quick-witted. Up to that point, I was told I was average or slightly below in academics, and, and, and I'm a good utility player in sports. But that all changed. I did a 180-degree turn in two major areas of my life, academics and athletics. In fact, a couple weeks later, they had a challenge. Who can do the most sit-ups in the ninth grade? Now, they weren't these crunch things you do now. You can do millions of them. These are these things that they, 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 they outlawed from the school system, the arthritic things that you, where you had to lay flat and somebody hold your feet down, you had to cross over and touch. They don't allow them anymore, but they did back then. And, and I set the record that year. I did hundreds of them, and, 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 and I set up through phys ed class, through English class, and through lunch. They let me keep going, and they were sending out, running. he's up to 429, he's up to whatever. My stomach muscles hurt for days after that. But I didn't care, because I was agile. <laughs> you know, it took me a while to put the pieces together, figure out why the coach disappeared so quickly after class. He had to get to his little office just off the gym, get his shoe off, get the scissors out, cut the hole in his sock, put it back on, and chase me down. He didn't go around with holes in his socks. He's a PE coach. They get new shoes and socks as part of the deal. But he saw a vulnerable kid that needed help. And he touched his life with grace. Now, let me tell you something. Our children and grandchildren have these kind of moments all the time. Someone has described childhood as a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year battle to keep from being embarrassed. They need to have gracious people to be able to process this fragile stuff around them. But legalism and performance-based Christianity or cowboy up and get over this stuff does not compute. You know, God puts inadequacies in us for a reason. And look, he, he put something in Paul. Paul had a, a thorn in the flesh. And people are not sure what it was referring to. Regardless, he went to God several times and asked him to take it away. And each time God said no. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weaknesses. We, we need to make sure that we, we, we're bringing grace center stage on these inadequacies. I love this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Grace-based families give the children they love the freedom to be different, the freedom to be vulnerable. And grace-based families give the, the, the children they love the freedom to be candid, to be candid. In other words, they can tell you what's on their mind even if it's stuff we're not excited about hearing. Maybe it's an area that they're struggling with. 
an area of temptation they're struggling with. Maybe they're having a lot of doubts about their faith. Maybe they come to a point in their life and say, you know what, I'm having a hard time buying that Jesus is God, that the Bible is the final authority, that the cross is the only way to eternal. I'm sorry, I'm just having a hard time embracing that right now. This isn't a time to panic and hire some theologian from Dallas Seminary and duct tape them to your kid's face until the kid gives it. No, no, no. Smarter kids than yours and mine have struggled with their faith. And what they need is the people, the adults in their life, graciously loving them through this, maintaining calm while their faith is on trial, and let them see you living with confidence in, in, in the beliefs you have in Christ as, as, as God works them through that. He who began a good work, in them, he'll perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus. And then sometimes what they need to tell you about is how frustrated they are with you or how frustrated they are with us. Because, listen, we get it wrong sometimes, don't we? There are no perfect parents out there. Your kids don't need perfect parents. They just need grace-based, imperfect parents. That's what they need. But we get it wrong sometimes. Now, when our kids get it wrong, we have an outlet to tell them, don't we? You just tell them right away when they got it wrong. But is that a two-way street when you get it wrong? Because if if it's not there, it, it just builds this stuff up inside of them. It's interesting, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, we don't have a high priest that doesn't understand what it's like to be in our skin, but was it always tempted like we are yet without sin? And then it says, so, he says, so let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help us in, your, in our time of need. And that throne of grace, sometimes we come to God and we're frustrated with him because something happened. We knew he had control over this and he made a choice. We don't understand it. He says, come to me. You're going to find grace and mercy. I have a big chest. Come to me. Our son, Cody, that uh, attended here for a while, uh, he was in high school, and uh, it was in springtime, and he had finished his homework. He was getting ready for bed, and he said, oh, Dad, I forgot to mention, I need you to sign me out of school tomorrow by noon. Why? What's up? Oh, it's opening day of the Diamondbacks, and my friend Steve has invited me to go with He's got tickets right behind the dugout, the Diamondbacks dugout. Now, you need to know something. The Arizona Diamondbacks had defeated the New York Yankees the year before in the World Series. So it's a big opening day. But for some stupid reason, I felt like I needed to teach my son about personal responsibility. I said, Cody, you're a student. I said, you, 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 have, you, you have to go to school. You get out at three. He said, Dad, I, I know, but, but, but listen, they're going to have F-16s fly over. And, and I thought, well, that'd be fun, but, 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 but it's like you have a job. But when we have jobs, we don't necessarily get to take off because something fun's on. He said, Dad, I think Randy Johnson's going to be on the mound. Well, that, that's, that's good for that. But, but then I went back to my personal responsibility lecture. And you could just see him getting more and more frustrated with stuff. And finally, said, he, got, he, he said this so respectfully. He said, Dad, listen, I bring you home straight A's. All I've ever brought you home are straight A's. I can't bring you home any better grades than I'm bringing you. Now, you need to decide whether I can go to that game. It was like a hand came right down out of the clouds from God and did one of these right on the top of my head. (laughs) What is your problem? Will you sign this kid out? Are you nuts? And, And what really is ironic is me giving him lectures about personal academic responsibility. Those straight A's did not come from his father's side of the gene pool. 
They come from his mother's. I struggled in school. I felt you should have vowels and consonants on your report card. Look, Dad, it's a, it's a find-a-word game right here. See, I think I see three. Again, can you sign it at the bottom? I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. And here's what's even more ridiculous. I would have never asked my father to sign me out of school for something like that. I'd have played hooky. I wouldn't have asked. We get it wrong. And we need to give them a gracious way to do that. Now, they have to do it respectfully. But the way you, you can increase the odds that your children will always speak respectfully to you when they're frustrated with you is speak respectfully to them when you're frustrated with them. You see, we push God's buttons, but does he take our head off and put it in a jar because he can? And yet we do that to our kids many times. He doesn't yell at us. He doesn't spew guilt and shame. and He doesn't do that. He corrects us. He, he deals with it, but he, he works on us. And that brings up the fourth thing. Grace-based, in fact, give, give these back to me so far. So what have we learned so far? Grace-based families give the people they love, first of all, the freedom to be what? Different. Secondly? Thirdly? Yeah, and the fourth thing, grace-based families give the people they love the freedom to make mistakes. To make mistakes. Look, they're going to struggle. We give birth to sinners. They've got to work this stuff through. And God has given us this wonderful thing called family for them to work this stuff out under. And they need to have an environment of grace to work through all the dangerous junk in their life. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. Doesn't mean that, because discipline is a form of grace. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines. But if we, if we do this wrong, if we don't give him the freedom to be candid or give him the freedom to make mistakes, look at, look at this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, God wants, he, go, he, he gives this gift. Now, where did I get these four things from? I got them from how Jesus deals with you and me. He gives you and me the freedom to be different and vulnerable and candid and the freedom to make mistakes. I think it's very difficult to give something to your kids that you haven't first received. If you're here in this concept of redeeming grace, this chance of having a new heart, a righteousness given to you as a gift from a holy God through the work of the cross. If this is something new or foreign to you and you want to know more, there's a pastor there. You can come up and talk to me. You'll see the pastor around. They, they, they use the ID with their thing. Talk to any of them. We'd love to talk to you about this. And then I want to say to you that I know that right now uh, some of you weren't thinking about spending the afternoon here at the church, but I want you to rethink that. Because if you come back this afternoon and we're going to unpack the, 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 the bulk of that napkin for you and point you to the right resource. And we're, we're going to look at the three driving inner needs that every kid has that every parent's supposed to be meeting. And here's the problem. The average parent, if you pin them down, said, uh, unpack me the three driving core inner needs of the average kid. The average parent you couldn't articulate them. They might get one. They can't get all three. But there's one person, if he were standing right here, and I asked him what those three needs are, he'd spit them right out. His name's Satan. He not only knows what these are, he's always appealing with counterfeits. We need to know what they are. We'll learn those. We're going to look at grace-based discipline, how grace comes to the rescue for us in discipline. How about strong-willed children? How does grace bring the best out of them? And then we're going to look at how, where we aim our kids because this world tells us to focus your attention on raising successful kids. That is the biggest bankrupt hand any parent could embrace. It is 
aiming in a silly way at the lowest target you could hit, but that's the one we're told to do, and that's the one we preoccupy, even Christian parents. We're going to show you how to aim at something so much bigger and better and greater. True greatness defined by God, a passionate love for Jesus that shows itself in unquenchable love and concern for other people. We'll show you what that looks like. You'll have fun. I guarantee if you come, your stock value will go up. Well, I need to land a plane here. <sighs> um, let me close just by saying this, that the window of opportunity to touch our kids with God's grace is not open forever. In fact, they, they slip through a lot faster than, than we ever imagined. And I was reminded of this one, one Saturday morning when I was awakened before dawn by my daughter Shiloh. At this time, she was about five years old, and she shook me awake. And she said, Dad, Dad, wake up. It's time to go out on our date. I'd promised her the night before I'd take her out on a breakfast date. And she'd gotten up and got ready, came in, and I, I looked at the clock and said, honey, it's still dark out. I said, but Dad, I, I picked this outfit out for you. I did my hair for you. And I thought, well, where she wants to go is open. It's open every day of the year, including Christmas, at the convenience store called Circle K. They're all over Arizona. That's where she wanted me to take her. And I, oh, no problem. Let's go. And I got up, got ready. This will be fun. And we got out there. We got to Circle K right about dawn. And we went in there, and she picked out a couple of donuts and some juice for her. I got a cup of coffee. I paid for everything. And we went, and we sat down on the curb on the side, side of that Circle K to have our date. And we're sitting there. Now, there was a dumpster over here, but we're fine. We're over here. We're fine. Everything's safe over here. And we're, we're just visiting. And sweet little Shiloh, and I'm letting her set the agenda. It's her date, and she's yapping away about the Sleeping Beauty movie we'd gotten for her that she'd been watching over and over again. She's quite enchanted with that story, and she's talking about Sleeping Beauty. I said, what's your favorite part? She said, oh, Dad, I love the part at the end when the handsome prince and Sleeping Beauty dance together in a castle, and I thought, well, that's my favorite part because I'd watched it with her, and I don't know what provoked me to do this, but I decided to reenact it. And I put everything back in the bags, lids on everything, and I picked Shiloh up right there. I started singing, I know you, I waltzed with you once. And we were just waltzing away and, and swinging, and she's just leading into me. And as I came around, there was a small little lot here, and right across was some new homes. And there was, a, there, there was some new homes there. They're not very far away. And I looked over there, and there was a man sitting at his breakfast table looking at me. You, you see, he was just staring at me. And the thought crossed my mind, he's, he's, he's stirring his coffee, calling his wife. Look, 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 there's an idiot over at the Circle K. <laughs> Dancing with a little girl next to a dumpster. <laughs> but another thought crossed my mind. Then in a very brief period of time, some young man was going to come along and tap me on the shoulder and say, Mr. Kimmel, may I cut in? And waltz her out of my life for good. Turned out his name was Ian. Phenomenal young man, but he showed up a lot sooner than I thought it would be. It just went so fast. And that's why you can't wait on this. Now, look, I know when it comes to parenting, the days seem long, but the years are short. Let's touch them with grace. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Oh, thank you for all your mercy, for all you've done for us. We're undeserving people that didn't deserve anything from you but your judgment. You intervened and took our judgment for us and set us free from our guilt, our shame. And give, you've given us a whole new reason to live our lives and, and, to live our, and what to live our lives for. And so I just pray for these parents, these grandparents, these young folks, these single folks, everybody here. Lord, we pray that we will let your grace wash over us, that we will be recipients of your grace. 
And then we'll turn around and become advocates for your grace, emissaries for your grace, the people you brought in our life, especially those people close to us, our children and our spouse. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.